Welcome to Calvary Chapel Living Water. We are in between books currently. And so I've titled the message this morning. Let me make sure I have my notes in the right order. Um, I've titled the message, Unconditional Love, Tough Love, and Jesus Addresses the Misunderstanding of Why We Suffer. Is that all on there? Oh, it's crazy. So this is what happened this week. I feel I'm too loud. Am I too loud? No? I'm all right? I can quiet down. All right. So what happened this week is um, I have four daughters. My wife and I have four daughters. And I was just thinking about how to love them unconditionally. And then where does tough love come in while you love them unconditionally? And so I remember when I went to this one-week counseling training up in Indio, California by Palm Springs, I remember that one of the instructors said the best devotions that we can have sometimes are reading in the Bible the very things that we're going through in life. And so as I was considering and contemplating unconditional love and the unconditional love, of course, of God, um, and how then that is to be, um, I guess, um, like as we receive it, we dispense this unconditional love, right? Uh, but and then you have this idea as well where sometimes it seems doing the loving thing is not very loving. And where does that tie in? Um, and then as I was doing that, like I'm going through all of that, then I was thinking, well, what about um, this idea of how there's this misunderstanding of why we suffer? And a lot of times either somebody will say, well, you're suffering because you're in sin or you're bad or you must have done something. And and that's not what really all the time what the Bible teaches. And so just, again, I'm just, just, this is me. This is like my week, what I was going through. And so I began to just kind of look it up and research. And before you know it, I'm writing notes. And I'm like, oh, this is a pretty cool little Bible study. So here it is. <laughs> that's my Bible study. If you do have your Bibles, we're going to get there eventually. In the last section, we're going to cover Luke chapter 13. So why don't you go ahead and turn right now with me there. I'm going to turn to Luke 13 because we're going to get there eventually. But we're going to start out all over. And what I'm going to do is I've asked our PowerPoint person to present for you the scriptures that we're going to go through in the first two sections. Um, we'll go through them up here so that... If you want, you can kind of follow me, but I'm going to be going pretty quickly through the scriptures as we talk about the unconditional love of God, and then we get to tough love. But eventually, Luke 13 is where we're going to spend a little time as we look at verses 1 through, I think it's 9 or so. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless this time. And Lord, if we've never come in contact or comprehended this idea of your love for us. Lord, may we just take a step back and see what the scriptures have to say as it relates to your love and who you are towards us. We sing about it. We talk about it. But Lord, I pray that it is something that we 
would be confronted with. Lord, that it would assault us in every good sense of the word. And so bless this time that we have together and may we receive what the Spirit desires to show us and teach us this morning in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So the unconditional love of God. God, His very nature is love. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In addition to the fact that God is loving, He is love. Everything He does is out of His nature of love. He cannot act outside of this love because he is love. We are chosen, the Bible teaches, in God's love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And so we are chosen in God's love. God chooses us when we are at our very worst. He doesn't choose us when we're doing something good or, or we're doing something right or we finally figured something out. The Bible teaches the very opposite. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a very difficult concept for some to understand. For me, uh, it was very difficult to first take in because I didn't believe it. I was at a conference. I've shared this with you, but I was at a conference up in Big Bear and Justin Alfred, Pastor Justin Alfred and Pastor Dave Rolfe would be sharing. They'd be tag teaming at this men's conference. And I remember Justin Alfred sharing out of Genesis chapter 6 when God was going to take Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives and with these eight people, put them on a boat, on an ark. And he was going to judge the whole world. And in that Genesis chapter 6, he says, every thought was continually evil with man and mankind. And then Justin Alfred taught this idea, this concept of the depravity of humanity, that we are evil, that we default to evil, that we're not good, that there's nothing redeemable within us. There's nothing good that God sees. And the only good that we have is the good that God is able to put there and our surrenderedness in that. And as we yield to that and allow God through us, there's the good. And I didn't believe it. I, I was fighting with God sitting in my seat and I began to cry 
and I'm like, God, tell me that this isn't true. This might be true for some people in here. I know some of them. And Lord, yeah, there's nothing good in them. I can see it. I've talked to them. I know, Lord. But come on with me. I know that this isn't right, right? I mean, like you saw something in me, God. You saw something worthy of redeeming within me, right? God, tell me that that's what you saw. That's what you see, right, God? There's something here. And God said, son, there is nothing good in you. And the only good in you is because I put it there. And I'm able to do something with you and I literally began to weep in recognition that there is nothing good that dwells within me. The Bible teaches that we are alienated from God due to our sin. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. If we ask the question, how many have sinned? The unfortunate answer is all. The Bible teaches in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just in case we thought maybe there's a little smidget of hope, we can ask how many merit the love of God and the answer comes back, none. None can merit. None can deserve None can get this love in and of themselves because they are deserving of it. Romans 3.10 through 18, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the plight of humanity. That is where people stand before this holy and perfect and righteous God And then in light of that information, what does God do? John 1, 14, John 15, 13, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, 1 John 4, 9, and 10. That's God's response to man's condition. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of only as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What does God do? He becomes a man and he enters this world and he dwells among us and we behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is the love of God that we loved God. But I'm sorry, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a beautiful set of verses there. First John 4, 9 and 10, it summarizes this whole thing, the propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath, God being perfect, God being complete, God needing nothing, God being holy has to do something with sin. Nothing unholy will ever enter into the presence of God. And so the justifying of God's wrath, the propitiation, the justifying of his wrath is Jesus coming in the likeness of man and taking our place, the perfect for the imperfect, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he appeases, he meets the requirement of God's wrath. In summary, it is important to note that God's love is a love that initiates. It never is a response. That is precisely what makes it unconditional. If God's love were conditional, then we would have some, we would do something to earn it or merit it. We would have to somehow appease his wrath and cleanse ourselves of our sins before we would be able to, before we would, uh, he would be able to love us. But that is not the biblical message. The biblical message, the gospel, is that God, motivated by love, moved unconditionally to save his people from their sin. That's the unconditional love of God. There is nothing that we can do so good to make him love us more. There's nothing that we can do so bad to make him love us less. His nature being love, he just loves us. And then we look at the other side of that because as I want to love people unconditionally, I notice sometimes I get in the way of the very work that God desires to do in their lives because I think that I have a better motive at times. I think that I have more compassion at times. I think that I have a greater sensitivity sometimes. And oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm standing in the way of God wanting that person to be able to come to themselves and that's where tough love comes in. Not only practiced by us, but definitely practiced by God. Tough love is an expression that is generally thought of as a disciplinary measure where someone is treated rather sternly with the intention of helping him or her in the long run. Tough love may be the refusal to give assistance to a friend asking for help when to do so would simply allow him to continue along a dangerous path. However, with tough love, in a biblical sense, the chastening hand is always controlled by a loving heart. As King Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And so we need to be careful in this permissive culture 
that we live in, in which we watch somebody destroying their very life and we're stopping God by intervening in what God is desiring to do in that life. So the foundation of tough love for me, I went first to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. There is an enemy who wants to thwart God's plan for us. And so we need to recognize. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Satan doesn't want to simply tickle us, tantalize us, tease us, not even simply tempt us. But he wants to devour us. He wants to have us for lunch. He wants to destroy our life and then laugh in our face in that destruction. That's diabolical. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, there is a broad path that leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. And so there's an enemy that wants to devour. There's a broad road or a broad path that many find themselves on that leads to destruction. In Hebrews 12, 11, the Bible talks about tough love has a purpose in mind. The Bible says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so there's an objective in discipline. There's an objective with this tough love. There's a training that needs to take place. There's a growing that needs to happen. There's a maturation or a maturing that God wants to see us go through. We are in good company when we discipline, Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. We are destined to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's our destiny. That's the end goal for God. That's what he wants to do. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Tough love in conclusion. This is what his dis uh, discipline is all about. And the better we understand his word, the easier it is for us to accept this. God will administer whatever amount of tough love is necessary so that our behavior will line up with our identity in Christ. Likewise, this should be a, pa a parent's motive when correcting the behavior of a wayward child. And so instead of getting in the way of what God wants to do in somebody's life, we need to prayerfully consider what God would have us to do in the midst of somebody's life. Again, oftentimes we feel bad. We feel um, this, I don't know if it's misdirected compassion when somebody has their hand out and they continue to ask for money and ask for money and ask for money and ask for money. And we think that by throwing money at a situation, we're able to help the very situation or to continue to just let somebody live in a state that is destructive to themselves. When the prodigal came to his senses, it was because the father who is represented by God in the parable that Jesus, or not even a parable, right? Yeah, it is a parable. <laughs> it's one parable with three different parts. 
Um, and so within that parable, the father representing God the father let that individual sow their wild oats and had nothing to do with them in that season while waiting by the door for his son to come home after he came to his senses, but yet not intervening while he was in the pig's pen, desiring to eat the very slop that he was feeding to the pigs. And then he came to his senses. And so when we receive the unconditional love of God, we recognize that God also chastens us. God is desiring that as we love people unconditionally, that we as well get wisdom from God when we should practice this thing called tough love. Allowing people to live with the consequences of their choices and only intervening when these people come, if you will, to their senses, not getting in the way of the very things that God is trying to do. Now head on over with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. You should be there. Let me pull it back up. And we'll tie these three together through this series that Jesus is speaking about here in Luke, chapter 13. He also spoke this parable, verse 1 says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Oh, whoa, whoa, I'm way off. I was reading the parable before I read the verse 1. Okay. I must need a drink of water. The first part. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell... And killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus addresses the misunderstanding of why we suffer. He gives in this first section, verses 1 through 7, two examples of a group of individuals who had recently died. Some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifice in the temple. And then these 18 people that randomly in this tower in Siloam falls on them and crushes them and kills them. And oftentimes we, as in the first century, have this misunderstanding that bad things happen to bad people. And if bad things are happening to us, many Sometimes we'll indict and say, well, bad things are happening to you. You must have done something wrong. You must be bad because these bad things are happening to you. 
And instead of dealing with why people die, Jesus deals with, hey, how about the people who are left alive? And in this account, he doesn't address that these people were good or bad, but he lets the people know who are alive. If you think that these people died because they were bad, you're no better than any of them. And twice, he tells in both of these sections that we are called to repentance. Unless you repent, unless you repent. Verse 5 and verse 3. By noting the ancient Greek grammar, we see that Jesus here mentioned two kinds of repentance, and both are essential. In Luke 13, 5, unless you repent, described a once and for all repentance. The verb tense in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, described a continuing repentance. What is repentance? It means to turn away from 180 degrees. So if I'm walking in this direction, 180 degrees would be the very opposite direction. If I'm walking away from God, if I'm not honoring God, if I'm not glorifying God, if I'm not looking to God in repentance, through repentance, there's a confession. Wow, I'm, I'm doing something that's wrong. I'm moving in a wrong direction. My life is headed in a bad direction. I repent. I confess. I, I say, Lord, I acknowledge that I'm moving in the wrong direction. And the, the fruit of that, to be a Christian is a one-time repentance. Lord, I'm walking away from you. I don't even know you. I hear the gospel. Now I know you. I look to you and I begin to walk in your direction. But and then that other one says, as Christians, we should be constantly repenting. We should have a lifestyle of repentance. Then Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree that I read to you in the wrong order. In verse 8 he says, And also he said this parable, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. The fig tree is the national symbol of the nation of Israel. Jesus had served in his ministry for about three years at this point. This fig tree is definitely used as the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus. And so he's saying for three years, I'm walking around this nation of Israel. I'm finding no fruit on it. That's definitely the immediate application. But we can definitely apply this to our lives as well. And so we should be bearing fruit. There should be something, if we are repenting, as he said in the first section, if we are recognizing and confessing to say the same thing as, that's what confession means, but we read the word, we study the word, we sit under the word, we realize that we have a difference of opinion, we change our opinion, right? God's not changing his opinion. God's not applying for the job. He is God. And so in that, as the Lord walks around our life, if you will, and he sees no fruit, he digs up certain things and he fertilizes, which means junk comes into our life. And what is the fruit, the byproduct of that? It should be fruit, right? 
The obvious fruit could be found in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control, and those types of things. Pastor Chuck Smith said, we will become like that which we worship. And as we worship God, we should become what? More loving, more gracious, more long-suffering, more kind. And those fruits should be evident within our lives. Barclay drew several wise points of application from this parable. First of all, uselessness invites disaster. Are you and I growing in the things of God? If we go to an apple tree, the byproduct of that fruit would be an apple, growing off of an apple tree, right? What is the fruit? What is the byproduct of our lives to God? Number two, he says, if something only takes, it cannot survive. If I am a consumer and all I am doing is taking and taking and taking, it is only a matter of time before I am dug up and thrown into the fire. Because according to God, useless. The third point Barclay says is God gives second chances. He sees for three years this fig tree doesn't produce fruit. And yet another chance. He will dig around. He will fertilize and come back next year to see if fruit is growing on this tree. And then there is a final chance. There is a final chance where God says, let's see what happens. But it does come to an end at some point. And so God, the Bible says, will not always strive with man. What is the byproduct of our relationship with God? I mentioned that as you and I respond to grace, it will live out a disciplined life. So God has this ocean of grace that he makes available to you and I. Out of gratitude and thankfulness, for his goodness and his unconditional love and his sacrifice that he makes for us and all of the wonderful things that he has for us. The response, not the responsibility. The love is unconditional. But the response to that is gratitude. Lord, I just want to thank you. And gratitude is lived out in obedience through a disciplined life. As you respond in obedience with a disciplined life, God floods you with more grace to obey. As you respond to that grace through obedience, God gives you more grace to continue to live the disciplined life that he's called you to live, to, live out. And so we have these three the unconditional love of God, tough love, and then this misunderstanding of why we suffer. Truly, God calling us to repentance in a moment-by-moment -moment relationship with Him that we would acknowledge through confession that we don't have it all figured out, but when, we, when things are made, like brought to the light in our lives, then we're allowed to respond in that repentance to God 
And then we continue to just walk and talk with God. That's about all I have. Questions, comments, concerns. I will let you ask if I've confused anybody. Go ahead. Uh, with suffering, uh, there's been a lot of suffering in my life this year. And I don't really understand. I mean, I know when you go through suffering, it strengthens your faith. But I don't understand because I have to repent for things, I guess, no, suffering is uh, just part of humanity. We live in a fallen world. And if you look at the people that in, the, in the beginning of Luke chapter 13 that Jesus used, right? So you have people who at the hand of man suffered horrible things. They were, they were tortured. And then their blood was mingled in a sacrifice by Pilate. How wicked of a, of a dictator, right? Of a leader. But and then you have this random act, right? This, this tower, and the city of Siloam falls on these 18 people and crushes them dead. And so suffering is God's megaphone to get our attention. Suffering is the thing. What I shared in the first service was as we go through good times and we receive the goodness of God, the love of God, we hear the gospel, we get saved what, what that's supposed to do is it's, called us, it's supposed to cause us to look up and to be thankful to God by drawing our attention to God and His goodness. But the very opposite is true as well. When we go through difficulty, what that's supposed to do is get us looking to God, be thankful in the midst of what tragedy and pain is going on as we look to God and we grow even in that suffering because what God is faithful to do in the midst of our suffering is mold us and shape us into the image of the Son, which is our destiny. Romans 8, 29. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of God. A lot of people will share Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. But they always leave out verse 29. What's the good purpose that all things are working out good for? Conforming us to his son. We're being molded and shaped into the image of his son. So we're not what we used to be, but we're not what we're going to be. God is currently transforming us into the image of his son. How? Through everything that comes into our life. As difficult as that is to endure. I'll share a verse with you. One of my favorite verses, Romans 8. 18. I think I might have shared it with you before. For I consider that the pres present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. God is working glory into our accounts through the difficulties that we go through. That he would extract. I see God just taking a sponge of our blessings and just squeezing out every ounce of drop that would come out to bless us in heaven and say, this is for you. How? I, I don't even know how that, I was just such a whiner. I was just, I was kicking and screaming the whole way. I was, as we were going through it, I was resisting, I was fighting. Nah, I was working glory. I was doing something deep. You didn't see it. 
You ever see that beautiful picture? It's a tapestry, but a beautiful picture on the front, and then they turn it over, and on the back, it's all these knots and these ugly, jagged uh, strings that are just hanging, and it just looks like something you just want to cut. And we see that side. God sees the tapestry that he's making on the other side that's just this beautiful, beautiful picture. Anybody else? The final chance? The point of no return? Uh huh. We give up on ourselves far sooner than God will ever give up on us. Far sooner. I got to pray with two of my brothers on their deathbed. One a 13-year heroin addict. The other an avowed homosexual that ran away at 16 years old, went to Hollywood, lived with his boyfriend, contracted AIDS, died at age 25. I got to pray with both of them on their deathbed. We give up far sooner on God than God will ever give up on us. And so that point of no return, it's if there's ever, like you're talking to somebody, oh my gosh, I think I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No, if you think you've committed it, you haven't committed it. If you think he, yeah. And God gives us till our last dying breath. He is so gracious. We are watching the documentary on Ted Bundy, pretty wicked guy. And we were watching the other one on Jeffrey Dahmer and, one of them was said to give his life to the Lord. A serial killer, somebody who wreaked so much havoc and pain and suffering in people's lives. And so ah, the grace of God is something that we just cannot begin to fathom. And some people get mad that somebody so wicked could be saved. I don't think we understand our depravity. I don't, understand, I don't think we understand how wicked we are as human beings. Anybody else before we pray? I give you guys opportunities to ask questions because if you're thinking it, then I think somebody else might be thinking it and it's important to be able to make sure you're clarified, especially a study like this. This is a moment in my brain and just my week as I was just struggling with certain things. How do I love and I don't want to love wrong and I don't want to get in God's way and I want to make sure that I'm letting God. But then I'm a father. I have a 32-year-old daughter and a 31-year-old daughter and a 27-year-old daughter and a 23-year-old daughter, and I just want to love them. And I don't want to be in the way of what God wants to do in their hearts and in their life. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mess that up, but I want to be a daddy. They have one daddy. I want to be their dad, so it's kind of tough. No questions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Nothing we got to do, Lord. Just open our hand and receive it. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we can bask in the wonder of what this love is and what it represents and what it means. Lord, when bad things happen, may we never think, Lord, that you are mad at us. May we never listen to the voice of the enemy that wants to devour and get us off. But Lord, may we truly come to understand that even in the midst of chastening, it's because of your love. You discipline us and that proves that you love us. We have an enemy that wants to devour. We have a broad road that leads to destruction. And so, Lord, you allow difficulties, seasons of pain, that we would look to you, that we would trust in you, that we would hope in you. And so, Lord, continue to mold us and shape us into your image. 
Continue to do that work deep inside. And may we trust the work of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never given your life to the Lord, if you've never recognized this love that God has for you, God wants to come into your life, come into your heart. And so you do that through a prayer. There's Book of Romans gives us this Romans road that declares the gospel. But ultimately, in Romans 10, 8, and 9, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we confess that Jesus is Lord. And more importantly, that he's my Lord, that he's the Lord of my life. And so if you've never done that, I'll be in the prayer room, give you an opportunity to do that. Let's stand for this last song.